you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Though I have not been in this pulpit for the last four weeks, I have not been negligent in preaching. In fact, as you will hear more about tonight in our uh, testimony presentation time, uh, 27 times I was preaching over the last two weeks in the, in the Philippines while I was there, and it was a, a joy and a delight and a privilege, but I'm especially thankful to be back in uh, your midst, in the midst of my church family, and uh, it is good to see your smiling faces this morning, but it's even better to see your open Bibles. And so we want to think about over the last six weeks, as able men have stood here and have been explaining from Ephesians 6 the reality of spiritual warfare. A warfare that is not of bombs and bullets and bayonets, but of sin and sanctification and sword of God's word. We have heard from Paul's instructions to the Ephesians, uh, the clearest summary here of the Christian's duty in this spiritual warfare. We have seen our enemy We have seen the strength of our Savior by whom we stand against that enemy. We have seen the armor that God provides to protect us from spiritual injury. And we have seen the weapon of our warfare, namely the Word of God. And as we finish out this passage, we see a final component to our warfare, namely prayer. And in many ways, this is the most important element of God's protection That is given to us. It's not without reason that one pastor has said, you will not know what prayer is for until you know that life is war. This is where the real power of spiritual warfare lies, not with us, but with God. And the way to receive that empowerment is by asking for it in prayer. Prayer keeps us alert to the schemes of the enemies. Prayer keeps us close to our Savior, trusting in His strength. Prayer enables us to put on and stay fitted with God's armor. Prayer gives us the strength to take up and wield the word in battle against sin. Even the very structure of Ephesians 6 signals us on the importance of prayer. In verses 18 through 20, Paul gives at least twice as much time to prayer as to any other element in this passage. In fact, Paul writes in such a way that the entire passage, the very call to stand, finds its climax in this exhortation to be praying. Thus, without prayer, we would not be able to do anything else in this passage. We would not be able to stand against the schemes of the enemy. We would not be able to stand firm in the strength of our Savior. We would not be able to be equipped with the armor of God or wield effectively the Word of God. Prayer is what brings all of these things together, allowing us not to be feeble and failing in our stand against the enemy. So the question is, how are we to pray? What should the Christian's prayer life look like? You can go online, you can go in the bookstore, and you'll literally find hundreds of books on prayer and technique and how you should be praying. And yet here, Paul gives us some instructions as well. In fact, coming from the hand of the apostle, they are therefore God's instructions as well. So follow along as we look at the apostle tell us what our prayer life should look like in the midst of spiritual warfare. He says, stand therefore, verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. 
This is more than just a description. Paul is issuing a command to the Christians he is writing to. And based on his use of the word all, Paul gives us four directions, four commands for how we should be praying. And then finally, one all-pervasive request that lies at the heart of spiritual warfare. And this morning, like any passage of Scripture, although perhaps more difficult because it relates to our prayer life, something that most Christians, at least in this country, struggle with, we are faced with a simple question. Are we going to listen to God's Word and embrace a life of prayer? Are we going to trust that what God prescribes for us is not only good for us, but good for His church, or will we ignore it? Will we walk away believing that we do not need God's help? If we are going to stand against sin, if we're going to stand against the devil, if we're going to stand against the world, then we must be a people who pray. And Paul tells us first that we should pray at all times in the Spirit. That we should pray at all times in the Spirit. This is what he says in verse 18, that we are to be praying at all times in the Spirit. But what does he mean by that? What does it mean to, what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Well, like any passage and trying to determine its meaning, context is always important. Not just the immediate context of what Paul is writing in this letter. We would say uh, the, the immediate context, the larger context of all that Paul himself has written. And we see both are helpful to us. Look at verse 17, the immediate context. Paul says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit. Spirit, Spirit, Word, prayer, uh, I think that he is cluing us in on on something here. To pray in the Spirit means, first of all, to pray by the Spirit's direction. To pray by the Spirit's direction. The same Spirit by which we pray is the same Spirit that allows us to wield the Word of God. And we see throughout the Scriptures uh, that God's Spirit works from and through and in God's Word. Paul says faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of Christ. People need to hear the Scriptures explained. They need to hear the Gospel so the Spirit can give life, convict them, lead them to faith in Christ. Likewise, people need to hear the Scriptures explained, the Gospel proclaimed, for the Spirit to mature them and to change them and to shape them into the image of Christ. Likewise here, there is a relationship between the Spirit and the Word. The Word is the Spirit's sword. He is the one that makes it sharp and effective. And I think that first and foremost, if Paul says we are to pray in the Spirit, at least in part that means we should be praying in a Spirit-directed way. Namely, we allow His Word to direct our prayers. We come to a situation, we say, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what I'm supposed to be praying. Guess what? He's given you 66 books that tell you how to pray. Very often we will pray, well, God bless them. And He will. But, you know, He tells us specific things He wants to bless them with in the book. And if we will open the book and use it as our prayer book, God's own Spirit will direct us on the specific things that we should be praying for. Therefore, we should read the Word, we should understand the Word, and then we should pray the Word. Pastor William Gurnall says this, Furnish yourself with arguments from the promises of God to enforce your prayers. Make them prevalent with God. The promises are the ground of faith, and faith, when strengthened, will make you fervent. And such fervency ever speeds and returns with victory out of the field of prayer. The mightier any is in the word, the more mighty he will be in prayer. Secondly, as we think about the larger context of Paul's writings, I think to pray in the Spirit also means to pray by the Spirit's power. 
to pray with the Spirit's power. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul says that through Christ we have access in one Spirit to the Father. Likewise, in Romans 8, Paul says we have received the Spirit of adoption as sons by who we cry, Abba, Father. See, the Spirit of God is the one that brings us into the adopted position of sonship and therefore gives us both the desire and the ability to call out to God as Father. When we call out to God, it is not just king, it is not just sovereign, it is not just creator, though he is all those things. Jesus instructs us to call God Father. That's not a blanket invitation for all of humanity. It is those who have the spirit of Christ, the spirit of adoption that moves us to call out to Abba Father. And Paul will later tell us in Romans 8 that in the midst of this sinful world in which we live, we face struggle and hardship. And therefore, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Praying by the Spirit's power is remembering that He is the gift of God our Father. Because of the work of Christ, not anything that we have done, but because of what He has done, the Spirit has been sent into our hearts to give us direct access to God. And therefore we come boldly before the throne. We don't come thinking, well, I've lived really well this week. I've sinned very little, therefore God is going to want to listen to me. Now, I do think there is a correspondence between cherishing sin in our heart and God hearing our prayers. But the point here is we come because of the righteousness of Christ applied to our life. That is what gives us boldness before the throne. Even so much that when we don't know how to pray, when you hear a story that is so tragic and just so heart-wrenching, and you say, I don't even know where to begin, just that emotional groaning out to God, do something. The Spirit takes that. Spirit who knows the mind of the Father. He, he, he takes that groaning and He turns it into prayers before our Heavenly Father, according to His will. In these things then, the direction and the power of the Spirit, we should be praying at all times. In other words, this is not just some kind of special praying. This is how we always are coming before God. In good times, in bad times, in despairing times, in difficult times, in painful times, we should be praying in the Spirit. In the morning, throughout the day, before we rest our heads on our pillows, at work and on vacation, we are to be praying in the Spirit and at all times. But secondly, we should also pray with all prayer. We should pray with all prayer. When you talk to many Christians about their prayer life, if they are honest, they will tell you that they find their prayer life dull. The question is, how does that happen? How does a prayer life become dull? If I had to guess, as one who has experienced dullness in prayer life, it's because we tend to forget that prayer is about more than simply asking for things. Prayer is about our relationship with God. If you had a friend and the only time you heard from that friend is when they wanted something from you, I don't think you would like them to be your friend very much anymore, right? If once a week or once a month they called you on the phone, they sent you a text, they messaged you, Twittered you, Facebooked you, whatever, whatever way you communicate these days, and they said, hey, can you do me a favor? Can you, can you bring something to my house? Can, can I borrow something from you? Eventually, you would stop returning the call. You would stop following the tweets. You would disconnect from Facebook. You would say, there's such a taker. But many of us treat God that way in prayer, don't we? He's like a divine vending machine. 
We just go in with promise B and verse A and request lever C and hopefully the gift pops out. But that's not what prayer is about. Prayer is about a full-orbed relationship with our Heavenly Father. And therefore, we should seek through prayer to be cultivating that relationship. Notice Paul says, stand therefore praying with all prayer and supplication. What does that mean? Well, supplication does mean asking. It's a word for prayer that means asking for the good things that God wants to give us to live the way He's called us to live. But prayer is the more generic term for any communication with God. And we look to the Bible, just look to the Psalms this afternoon. We see prayer is like a jewel, and as you twist it in the light, its different facets gleam and glow and shine brightly. So what are these different facets of the jewel of prayer? Well, there's several. First of all, there's adoration and praise. This is telling God how great that He is. It is driven by an attitude of worship for what God has done, not just in our lives, but throughout time and in the lives of those around us. Then there are prayers of confession and repentance. Here our prayers are acknowledging our sin before God and frankly are essential if we're going to stand in the midst of spiritual warfare. The devil not only delights to tempt us to sin, but when we give in to sin, he delights to come and then accuse us for that sin to make us feel guilt and unworth. But if we stay close to God through confession and repentance, then we give no quarter to Satan and his accusations. We repent through faith in Christ's sacrifice for us. We will be encouraged. We will be well equipped to ward off Satan's attacks. And and we will be close to our Heavenly Father. Prayers of thanksgiving are another important part of the Christian's prayer life. One pastor has said that prayer works in tandem with our requests like the double action of the lungs. In petition and asking God for things, we seek something for God and in receiving it, the natural response is to exhale our grateful prayers of thanksgiving. Finally, there is supplication. Again, it is asking for the things that we need. It might be asking for ourselves, which is often called petition. It might be asking for others, which is called intercession. Those all sound like very fancy and technical things for prayer, but really this is just how we relate to people. Think about all those things in the context of a relationship. Should I not give praise to my wife and my children for their hard work and their successes? Should, should I not confess my sin against them asking their forgiveness? Should I not thank them for the things they do for me and the love that they show me? Should I not, when appropriate, ask for help from them? Yes, 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 yes. What do we have here? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. We live and breathe that language, that that reality, that love and affection and dependence in human relationships, and all the more should it be the case in our walk with God. That is how we cultivate a deep and abiding relationship with God through prayer and the words when we pray with all kinds of prayer. Third, Paul says that we should pray with all perseverance. We should pray with all perseverance. This is what he says in verse 18. Keep alert with all perseverance. I think Paul is likely basing his command here on Jesus' own command. You remember uh, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and his uh, disciples are not being good friends. They are abandoning him rather than keeping watch and praying. And he commands them, watch and pray. Why? That you may not enter into temptation. For the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
If we are going to be ready for the devil's attacks, if we are going to be ready to fight off temptation and sin in our life, then we need to be on alert and watchful, both outside to the world and inside for our own hearts. It is only by persevering and watchful prayerfulness that we will be ready to stand firm against our enemy. You know, for the past 10 years, the United States has been engaged in at least two conflicts overseas, two, two wars really. But it's amazing how little that has affected our life on the day-to-day. Uh, we talked to my grandparents' generation, talked to my grandpa, and it's amazing that when he fought in World War II, the entire country felt the burden of that war. In wartime, newspapers were constantly carrying headlines about how the troops were doing. In wartime, families talked about sons and daughters and the sons and daughters of the neighbors and wrote to them and prayed for them with earnestness and concern for their safety and well-being. In wartime, the entire country was on alert. We were, we were armed. We were vigilant. We knew that loose lips sink ships. In wartime, we spent money differently because there was better ways to spend money than on new tires for the car. In wartime... It touched everybody. Everybody cut back. Even the luxury liners became the troop carriers. But that's not happened in my generation. I've never felt that. I can remember the the first desert storm and all these other conflicts, and nothing has ever affected my way of life or our generation's way of life. We get things on the news, but it's all politicized. No one would ever think of rationing in this country today, and if a politician suggested it, he would know he would be out of the next election. We are spoiled in our country today. But worse than that, my fear is the church is spoiled as well. For we are engaged in a war that is far more serious, far more pervasive, far more deadly than anything the United States has ever been engaged in. The stakes are far higher and we must be on the alert. We must be ready, persevering in prayer because the enemy is not going to let up. But how often do we do that? How often do we find ourselves coming off perhaps, hopefully, a small spiritual high from Sunday, having learned much in classes and engaged in fellowship and encouragement, and and Monday the alarm doesn't go off, or we decide to hit the snooze button too many times, and it's a quick bite to eat and we're out the work to lunch and it's a long day, and and, and we come home and there's a television show we want to watch, and suddenly it's Friday. We've never opened the Bible. We've never gone to God in prayer. As we look back, we can see little by little we have, we have given in, we have moved away, and we have not simply opened ourselves up to attack. We've actually given ground to the enemy. Why? Because we've not prayed with perseverance. We've not kept on the alert. We've not been on watch. I find Dr. Joel Beakey to be a very compelling and convicting man. He is a pastor. He is a theologian. He is an author. He is an editor. He is a seminary president. But more than any of those things, what impresses me the most is that he is a man of prayer. Specifically, he's a man who perseveres in prayer. It is his pattern every night to spend time with his wife in prayer before they go to bed. In fact, even when he travels around the world, he still takes a break from his schedule. He knows what time she'll be heading to bed and he calls her, pays the full long distance charges in order to be with her and pray with her and for her and their kids. The only time he failed to do that, he was kidnapped in Latvia. And as soon as he was freed, he called his wife and prayed with her. Here's a man who understands what it means to persevere in prayer. And Paul says we should be doing the same thing. 
it may not may not look exactly like that, but the point is he doesn't give up. He doesn't stop. Paul is even in prison and he doesn't stop. He doesn't give up. He says, keep persevering in prayer. Instead of growing slack and indifferent, we should constantly be at our father's feet, praying in the midst of life that is war, ready for what is to come next. And that prayer isn't just for us. Paul says, fourthly, that we should pray for all the saints. That we should pray for all the saints. Again, verse 18, we must stand firm, making supplication for all the saints. The first week of this series, we clearly identified who our enemy was. But we must also remember not just who the enemy is, but who the band of soldiers are that we are fighting alongside. God calls us to have faith in Christ. Our faith is personal. It is ours, but our salvation is never merely individual. We aren't fighting a private war. We are all units in the same army. God has called us to be part of His church. Therefore, we have fellow soldiers beside us fighting on the same lines for the same cause, the cause of Christ and the gospel. And Paul says we must be praying not just for ourselves, but for all of those around us as well, that they might persevere, that they might stand firm, that they might know spiritual life and vitality. Remember to whom Paul is writing. It is not a man named Ephesians. It is, it is a collection of churches in the city of Ephesus. All the Ephesian Christians. He is writing in the context of the gathered people of God. Probably for most of this series, the, 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 the weight of, of emphasis on application has been individual. That, that, that we've all been telling you, this is what you should do today. This is what, but remember, he's writing to a church. Therefore, everything in this passage also has a corporate dimension, including this. Paul expects... God's people to be coming together to be praying for all the saints. You know how few churches do that? It used to be the staple, especially of Baptist churches growing up. Now you practically have to bribe people to come and gather together to pray for all the saints. Yet when you read through the book of Acts, you see this was the, this was the, the one thing that stretched all through the the, 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 the lifeblood of the early church, it was corporate prayer, the gathering together of the church to seek God's face. And in fact, God always moved in the big advancing aspects of his plan of redemption when collectively the people of God were gathered together in prayer. Just bu- buzz through Acts this afternoon. Here's some highlights. Chapter 1, verse 24. The disciples gathered together, they're praying for wisdom. Why? Because they need to replace Judas. And God answers with Matthias' name. The Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost. Why? While 120 disciples are gathered together in prayer. The gospel moves forward among the Samaritans. In what context? In the context of a praying church. God directs the church to set apart Paul and Barnabas as missionaries while the church is praying. What does that do? It begins the global movement of the gospel among the Gentiles. You are ultimately Christians here today because way back in the first century, some Christians were gathered together to Antioch praying for God's will to be done. And he said, here's my will. Send Paul and Barnabas, the Gentiles might get the gospel as well. God delights when his people are gathered together, shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, seeking his face, seeking his blessing. Just ask Spurgeon. 
Spurgeon was a man who had an unusual blessing of God on his ministry. I don't know that there's ever been anybody like it that I've ever read about in church history. Literally tens of thousands of people were saved as a result of his preaching. Not just hearing him, but preaching even in print. A newspaper used to sell better if it had a manuscript of a Spurgeon sermon in it. Can you imagine that? One time, there were so many people gathered outside the church building that Spurgeon told all of the members, like 6,000 people, just leave, go home and pray. We're going to let the lost people in. The entire place filled up. How does a man get that kind of blessing from God? People would ask him, what is the secret to your success? And Spurgeon said very simply, my people pray for me. Before the service would begin, for an hour, three to five hundred people every Sunday gathered together praying that God would speak through his word, that sinners would be converted, that saints would be matured. We pray for all the saints coming together, but even while we're away, we pray for all the saints. What does that mean? It means we may begin with those that are closest to us, friends, family, neighbors, but then we begin moving out. We pray for sister churches. We pray for missionaries. We pray for the global church itself. We pray for Christians we've never met knowing we're going to spend eternity with them. One of the greatest joys I, I told every church we went to in the Philippines was this fact that even though I did not know their names, their faces, before I showed up that day at their church, I knew we were going to spend eternity together before the throne of God. And it, it, it delighted me to know I did not have to wait until that day in order to get to know them. Every, every single day there are Christians out in the world, not just in this country, but globally. There, every Sunday, there are churches gathering together, sometimes huddled away in secret rooms, sometimes out on fields because they cannot afford a church building. But the church is out there, and we must be praying for them. Paul says, pray for all the saints. Pray for those who live under constant threat of persecution for their faith. Pray for those Christians who live in areas that are being ravaged by false teaching. Pray for those churches that are desperately in need of more workers to strengthen them and to build them. You say, I, 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 don't, I don't know what the needs are. How, how can I know? It's not that hard. Unlike, unlike ever before, in, in no age of the world, we are connected with information. The, the only excuse to not pray intelligently for all the saints is laziness. We hand out missionary prayer letters. We hand out guides that, that summarize what, what, what's happening, at least on a monthly basis. Take those and actually pray for them. Read them. Go to websites like the Joshua Project. You can look up any country and it will tell you the status of global Christianity. It will tell you the needs of the lost people there. It will tell you the needs of the church there. You can pray for Christians in Botswana without ever having been there or know their names. Because someone else has done the hard work and the research and had boots on the ground and talked to people. And five clicks away is that information for us. How can we not be praying today for all the saints? Finally, finally, Paul has given us four directions for prayer, four ways that we should be praying in the midst of spiritual warfare, and now he gives us one request. Pray for the gospel. Pray for the gospel. This is really what spiritual warfare is all about. Remember back during the second sermon, we looked at Christ as our Savior, and we saw that Satan is consumed with stopping the gospel. His desire is to prevent men from believing the gospel, or to prevent those who have already believed from maturing and growing by the gospel. Therefore, at its core, 
If you had to boil it all down to anything else, spiritual warfare is about gospel advance in our hearts and in the hearts of those that have yet to believe. And Paul knows this. He knows it for the Ephesians. He knows it for himself. So he ends this section saying, stand firm, making supplications for all the saints, verse 8 19, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So what are we praying for? What is the essence of our prayer in the midst of spiritual conflict in our day? People write books and give talks on spiritual warfare, and it's all about uh, performing exorcisms and battling the occult and having power encounters and getting demons' names and calling them out. Paul says it is much simpler and much harder than any of that. Spiritual warfare is about proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And Paul's been saying, pray, 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 and now he tells you what to pray for. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for anything else. Because he prays for a lot of other things in his letters himself. But what he's saying is, this is the golden thread that runs through all of our prayers. This is our central concern. This is our default mode of praying. This is what captures our imagination and our mind and therefore flows freely off our lips. We are praying for the gospel of Christ. And this morning, you may be here, you, you may be here and you're, and you're not a Christian. And you've been hearing about this praying, about God as our Father, and it all sounds interesting, but you're not sure what it all means. This is, this is how you begin your life as a Christian. It starts with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the way that we come to know God as Father is through God the Son, Jesus. God sent Him into this world to live a perfect life as a substitute for us, for sinners. So that the life that He lived, He lived for us that we might have the perfect holiness that God requires for us to know Him and to be known by Him. But God also sent Jesus into this world to die for sinners. To bear the punishment that we deserve for our sins upon Himself. So, so, so... God has provided perfectly the means by which we are saved from our sins and the punishment of hell that they deserve through His Son, Jesus Christ. He not only came to live and die, but God raised Him from the dead and gave Him authority over all things. So now He is to be worshipped, not just as Savior, but also as King, as Lord over our life. And this morning, if you're here and you realize that all of this seems a bit vague and, and, and distant, then here's where you start. By looking to Jesus and trusting in Him to make you right with God. For those of us that are Christians though, this is where our prayers reside. This is what is the constant theme, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us two ways to pray for the gospel. First, we should pray for courage in sharing the gospel. We should pray for courage in sharing the gospel. It might be easy from Paul's letters and from Acts to think of Paul as a proud man, but I think that probably he embodies humility like nobody else. Here is the, the great apostle, and he's not ashamed to ask for prayer. Pray for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Remember, again, Paul's writing from prison. He's chained to another prisoner, to a Roman guard, and you can imagine the temptation will just be, be quiet, relax, endure, you'll be out soon. And he says, I, I, I ain't got time for that. That's not, that's not what I'm about. I want to boldly declare the gospel. If I was in prison, I would be saying, comfort, protection, free me from this duty of preaching the gospel. I just want to, I just want to survive in here. That's not what Paul says. It's not even his thinking. 
It's like, no, I'm an apostle. I'm a Christian. I know that God brought to life a man and established him as king of the universe. It was his own son. How can I not declare that? So give me courage. Give me boldness to proclaim that to anyone around me. We are so prone to make excuses and to have the long view. And Paul is saying, no, I am here. I am now. Let me open my mouth. Let me fear no one but God himself. Let me declare Christ. Secondly, he says, not just courage in sharing, but clarity in sharing. Clarity in sharing. Paul says, pray that words may be given to me to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. When we look at the parallel text in Colossians 4, uh, he specifically says that I may be clear in how I speak. I think he's saying the exact same thing here, just in different words. The mystery of the gospel has been set forth, and Paul says, I want the kind of words that I need to make it clear to those to whom I was talking. I don't want to be mumbling. I don't want to be fumbling. I don't want to be grasping for how to say it. Give me the words I need to speak to be clear. And it's interesting to me. When you read Acts, when you read some of Paul's letters, Paul was not a great orator. I mean, we we may have this this impression from all the statues in church history, you know, this number. And and, and you think, oh, it's Paul, you know, really giving it to him, you know. But what does he say to the Corinthians? I came with fear and trembling and in weakness. In fact, this this is the Corinthians' biggest beef with Paul. He's not like the great orators they're used to. That they despise him. They don't, they don't, they, they don't want to acknowledge that he is the apostle that brought them the gospel because he's not impressive at all. Apollos, when you read Acts and other, and the other letters, he's the great order. He is the powerful speaker. He is the one that, that, that has the body of an Adonis and the, and the, and the, and the voice of honey. And everybody's like, he's the greatest thing in the world. And as a preacher, I think it's very instructive that Paul doesn't pray, make me like Apollos. He doesn't say, make me clever. He doesn't say, give me humor. He doesn't say, give me great illustrations and speaking abilities and, and confidence in front, of, in front of people. No, he asks for two things, courage and for clarity. For clarity. He says, I, I don't care if I'm a big name like Apollos. I just want to be clear in sharing the gospel. I want to be sure that everybody understands exactly what I am saying. He says, pray that I speak the gospel boldly, clearly and that's what we should be praying as well not just for ourselves though for ourselves but for one another for for whoever's behind this pulpit for our missionaries for the global church because this is the very thing that we've been entrusted with this precious precious message paul says that we're, we're not fancy containers for it either we're like earthen vessels we are weak we are brittle we break and crack easily but we have this treasure of the gospel that not only gives us hope, but is meant to bring hope to those around us. Therefore, all of us should be praying for one another, courage and clarity in preaching it. Napoleon once said, an army marches on its stomach. No matter how brilliant the generals, no matter how brave the soldiers, they cannot win battles if they are starving. Troops need food and supplies. And even though Napoleon wrote this, even though he knew this, it was in fact this very point that was his downfall. In 1812, he invaded Russia with a huge army, larger than anyone had ever seen. And as Napoleon advances, the Russians do very little to stop him. Rather than fight head-on battles, the Russians keep retreating and they keep retreating. And as they retreat, they leave nothing behind in terms of supplies. 
And so the farther Napoleon reaches into Russia, Russia, the longer his supply lines grow. And then groups, small groups, begin attacking those supply lines at various points, seeking to, to cut them off. And it works. The supply lines become long and unreliable, and Napoleon's army begins facing devastating shortages. They begin to suffer from a lack of food, and many die because they can't get good nutrition. Others die because they can't get the medical treatment that they need. They're running low on clothing and fuel for fires and heating. And when the terrible Russian winter strikes, many of Napoleon's men shriveled and died in the cold. Napoleon eventually left Russia with his army in tatters. The military campaign failed because it didn't have the supplies and the resources it needed. And the reality is our life in spiritual warfare is no different. It's no different. We cannot endure. We cannot stand. We cannot fight sin if we do not have the resources necessary. What connects us to headquarters? What is the, what is the means of our supply line? It's prayer. It's prayer between us and our Heavenly Father. Through prayer, God supplies our daily needs. Through prayer, we receive His endless supply of spiritual strength, both for you and for the rest of God's people. We are energized for the battle with our enemy, even as we receive the resources that we need to advance the kingdom of Christ by the gospel. If if you have heard anything or learned anything from the past few weeks about spiritual warfare, then you need to learn this. Its success rises and falls on your prayerfulness. Period. You you can learn about the armor and you can be fascinated by that, about righteousness and salvation and faith. You can be fascinated by the devil and all of the, the principalities and powers. You can be thankful for Christ. But if you are not calling out in dependence upon God, you will fail every single day. Because we don't live today on yesterday's grace. We need grace today. We need today's mercies. We need today's assurances. We need a fresh word from God today. And prayer brings that. It's not without reason that John Newton, famous for writing Amazing Grace, wrote another song in which he says this. Forsaking prayer, we cease the fight. For prayer makes the Christian's armor bright. And Satan trembles when he sees the weakest Christian on his knees. May we at this church be people of prayer father that is our heart's desire this morning that we would be a people of prayer not just individually though certainly that but corporately that generations from now people will look to this church and say they knew how to pray They knew how to call out their Heavenly Father with boldness and confidence in Christ and yet with utter childlike dependence for the grace that they need. And God, because of that, you blessed. We were marked by love. We were marked by holiness. We were marked by faithfulness to the mission of the gospel of Christ. Father, we will only be successful in living out the way that you have called us to live if we call out to you in prayer. So God, I I pray now I ask you to give us a deep and abiding concern for prayer. God, even if we feel like we don't know where to begin, God, help us to remember this passage, the simplicity of Paul's directions, and yet the wide open vista for us to be able to continue to deepen in those instructions throughout our life. 
God, may it start with five minutes and may it grow to ten minutes and may it move to twenty in an hour. God, may we carve out the time necessary. May we be disciplined until it becomes delight in our hearts to come before you in prayer. And God, we trust that when you do this for us, when you give us the very thing that we need, we will be quick to give you the thanks and the praise for it. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. In response to the message this morning, I invite you to stand and sing with me, Alas, my